had the privilege today once again to listen to R.C. Sproul teach on Isaiah 6. If you've not, uh, if you've not listened to that, you really ought to. That was probably the high point of his whole ministry uh, was his teaching. I think it's teaching that put him on the map. I think that uh, I really, I really think that it's one of the best uh, sermons that uh, that he ever gave on Isaiah chapter six. So, if you haven't listened to that or you haven't listened in a while, uh, I would. Uh, that's on YouTube. I would just go and check that out. I, on the way in tonight, I was listening to with Josh and Lauren. We were listening to the last portion of the sermon, and I and I was. Uh, sort of struck with the reality that I cannot do anywhere near the justice to this text that he did. I thought we would just listen to him. And, uh, and Josh said, no, so, so you got me. <laughs> but Sproul is good. Sproul's better. Go, go listen to Sproul. But we'll do what we can uh, with the text. You've listened to that. You remember how he opens the sermon? It's very memorable in reference to how he opens it. Um, well, let's read our text first, and then we'll we'll let Sproul open it for us in terms of what he said about it. But uh, Isaiah chapter six, verse one. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Really, this is, a, this is a vision of divine holiness, unlike any place that you'll find in the pages of Scripture. Uh, Sproul opened up his sermon by, remind, by uh, explaining that when he was in seminary, he was in the library studying, and the seminary library was always very, very quiet. Uh, but on this particular afternoon... There was rumblings, and then the rumblings got louder and started moving through the library, and people were scurrying around, and, and uh, he went to see what all the commotion was about, and it had just been, uh, it had just been broadcast that uh, the president had been shot. So you got to go back to uh, the assassination of John F. Kennedy. And then how, uh, how that affected America and how America was absolutely plugged into that for the next several weeks and even months and, and even years. But it was, it was a hinge, it was a turning point in, in this, uh, in this uh, country's history. And uh, of course, Sproul's open, opening it up that way because that's exactly what's happening here with the nation of Israel upon the death of a certain king named Uzziah died in 740 BC. You can read about uh, this king. He was 16 years old when he came to the throne, and he ruled uh, in Israel 
for uh, 52 years. So that's a long time. It's a long time. He was a, he was a good king, and that, and that was unusual. Hi, Laura. He was a good king. Uh, in, the, in the northern kingdom of Israel, how many good kings did they have after the kingdoms divided? Zero, right? None. Good. The southern kingdom, Judah, how many good kings did they have over the years? What am I seeing? Five, eight? Did I see an eight? Eights have it. Um, and if you wanted to, and so you could, uh, hi girls, so you could talk about uh, Jehoshaphat, uh, Hezekiah, Josiah, these kind of kings, they emerged out of the southern kingdom as, as good kings. And uh, this is one of those kings, Uzziah. Um, we are in Isaiah chapter 6. So, and there's, there's uh, coffee and cupcakes. Cupcakes, you've got to go have a cupcake. Anyway, Second uh, Chronicles chapter 26 is where you would read about uh, Uzziah's reign. 26, um, really uh, from verse 1 all the way down, verse 19. Uh, do you remember how Uzziah's reign ended? What happened to him at the end of his reign? Anybody remember? What's that, sure? Yeah, so... So, do you remember how we got leprosy? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so you read about this again, 2 Chronicles chapter 26. Uh, Uzziah is angry. I'm just skipping the whole context. Uh, now he had a censer in his hand to burn incense. And when he became angry with the priests, uh, he goes in and leprosy breaks out on his forehead, in the presence of the priests, in the house of the Lord, by the altar of incense. And, and, and uh, Uzziah remains a leper until the day that he, he dies. He lives outside the king's palace and, and he dies. But he reigned 52 years. Um, that's a long time to be king. Uh, and even though he is a uh, popular king, still... Like, uh, like many kings before him, he comes to a tragic end because of his uh, sin. By the way, I do think that he stands kind of as a symbol of the nation itself, right? Having a very good start, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, called out, obedient, faithful, the patriarchs. And then, and then it's sort of a downhill, a downhill skid with various part, portions of times of repentance and restoration, but overall it was pretty much a straight downward slide into, uh, into apostasy. Um, and, you know, so that's what happened to Uzziah as well. Anyway, uh, kings come and go. Presidents come and go. Um, sometimes when great men die, people really get shook. What's going to happen now? Right? Um, uh, certainly this would have been true in, in the case of Uzziah's death. Um, the king is dead. The throne is empty. Who is going to be ruling and reigning? What is this nation going to look like? Uh, who's going to be our leader? All kinds of doubt, uncertainty, fear, no doubt. 
And that's the context of Isaiah 6. So hopefully you appreciate the weight of this. The king, the king is dead, but there is a king in heaven who is, who is occupying an eternal throne and, um, and he is faithful and he is unchanging and he rules and he reigns. I always remember this. I think it's important for us to be reminded um, men come and go. Men of God come and go. There's none of us uh, there's no preacher, there's no theologian, there's no pastor, there's no author, writer, leader in the Christian church that is indispensable. We, God raises men up and, uh, and removes them. And, they just, and, and the work of God is unaffected. Uh, the evangelical community mourned at the death of R.C. Sproul. What's going to happen to Ligonier Ministry? Those kinds of things, right? Um, somehow uh, things are just fine. Other men are raised up and they are carrying the torch in the new generation. And, um, and that's just the way it goes. So now we have the year that King Uzziah died and Isaiah, Isaiah sees the Lord. He sees the Lord. Um, and there's debate whether or not this is some place he's actually transported to. Is he transported into the very throne room of God in heaven? Or is this a vision? Uh, there's a lot of, there's debate. You can read the debate out there. I, at the end of the day, it really doesn't matter. Um, I take it as a vision. Others take it more literally. What matters is what he sees. Uh, he sees God. Astonishing. Um, the one who Isaiah sees in this chapter is the eternal Logos, the eternal Word, the eternal Son. What we're going to argue, what R.C. Sproul argued in his sermon, is that what Isaiah sees in chapter 6 is actually... Uh, the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ uh, in the temple. You knew that though, right? Um, do you know the basis for that belief? Do you know biblically why that would be the position that's being argued? I mean... Doesn't John identify Yeah, so John gets us down the road on this. Uh, it is interesting, if you look at your English Bibles, uh, you see that the, that, the, that the first Lord is uh, capital L, small o, small r, small d, right? Do you see that? Do you see the second Lord, verse 3? What is that? Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Um, why is that? Why, why, why the small letters and, uh, and then the capital letters in verse 3? Yeah, so anytime you see the capitals, all capitals, um, you can pretty much take it to the bank that that's the, that's the translation from the Hebrew Yahweh. Yahweh. 
All right, that's that's Yahweh. That's the name that God manifests or revealed Himself to to Moses. When uh, when when they asked me who sent you, who should I say? Say I am sent you. That is Yahweh. All right. Uh, what is the what is up with the small letters? Capital L, small O, small R, small D. Do you know the Hebrew word that's translated from? Adonai? Um, it shows up also like in uh, Psalm 110, where the Lord said to my Lord, where you have Yahweh speaking to Adonai. You have a conversation within the Trinity, right? Father speaking to the Son. Uh, and our English, by, you, you can't... So the English simply translates... Uh, these different ways, grabbing a hold of whichever Hebrew uh, word for God is being used. So here the word is um, Adonai. Uh, and Adonai, of course, is the one who has sovereign authority, absolute lordship. It emphasizes God's kingliness. It communicates strength, absolute power, and control. That's Adonai. And then, of course, in verse 3, the Yahweh, the Lord said, again, it's the same idea the Lord said to my Lord. Um, and, so, and so get the connection. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the absolute, eternal, sovereign monarch of monarchs. And as uh, April reminded us, John helps us here as well. If you want to turn over and take a look, it might be helpful. John chapter 12, verse 39. This is, um, there is no better passage that demonstrates Christ's deity as Adonai than this one. In uh, chapter 12, verse 39. 39 through 41. Who has that? Who wants to read? You got it? Yeah, John 12, 39 through 41. Go ahead, Amber. Therefore they could not believe, for again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I will heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. All right, so um, that comes out of Isaiah chapter 6 this very passage. Uh, so in verse 10, right? Isaiah six ten. So who is his and him that John is referencing, right? Uh, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Who's the his and him? Of course, that's a reference to Adonai, that Isaiah sees, that John now is identifying as the Lord Jesus Christ. So, in Isaiah 6, you're seeing a Christophany. You're seeing a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. There is Jesus before the incarnation in the temple. Second person of the Godhead, the eternal word of God is who Isaiah is seeing. So he says, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. Throne, that's a place of authority, place of power. 
It's a place of dominion. It's a place of sovereign rule. And there's Adonai on the throne. Um, Read the book of Revelation. Throne is used over 40 times. It's central to the book. And it's a book about the sovereignty of God over evil. And that's why, of course, Jesus is seen as the Almighty who is on the throne. Not Caesar, not Rome, um, not any human king, no matter how powerful. Christ is the Pantocrator, right? He is the Almighty overall. He, and we're told, Isaiah tells us, that he is lofty and exalted. Isn't that great? Lofty and exalted. So there's Adonai on the throne, lofty and exalted. Go over to Isaiah chapter 52 quickly in verse 13. Isaiah, since we're in Isaiah, we'll just take a minute. Isaiah 52, 13. And Isaiah 57, 15. All right? Isaiah 52, 13. Isaiah 57, 15. Hang on to this lofty and exalted language. In, in 52.13, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Who is the servant of Yahweh in Isaiah? Of course, that's the Lord Jesus. In Isaiah 57.15, For thus says the Holy so, for thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in a high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. I'm going to actually talk about this on Sunday. To revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. So here is the high and lifted up one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. Three times Isaiah is using this term, this phrase, high and exalted. And this is the servant of Yahweh, Isaiah 6. This is Adonai. This is the Lord Jesus sitting on his throne. It's used of the servant of the Lord who is high, lifted up, and it's also used of the Holy One who is high and lifted up. So there is no doubt in Isaiah's mind that the servant of the Lord is none other than the Lord himself. This is, these are references that would argue the deity of Christ. These references are showing that Jesus Christ is in fact very God, a very God. Then we have this phrase, the train of his robe is filling the temple. The hakal, the temple. It's interesting that that word is used. By the way, king's robe. Oh, Sproul does this. It's great. Uh, he, he was old enough to remember stuff like this, right? The assassination of JFK and the coronation of Queen Elizabeth. And uh, so he started talking about... Uh, the TV coverage of the coronation of Queen Elizabeth and how many people it took to actually um, 
to actually carry the train of her garment as she was moving and walking. She had have servants behind her that were actually just given the charge of handling uh, the train of her of her robe. So this train of the robe filling the temple. This is a direct reflection, right? So we've carried this over into our day with kings and monarchs and important rulers. The way they dressed said a lot about um, their power and authority, their majesty, if you will. Um, And so, for instance, a king with, uh, with a lot of power who had been reigning for a long time he would have a very long robe. It's a sign of his majesty. Other kings, lesser kings, would have shorter robes. The the size of the robe was reflective of the majesty of the king. Isaiah says that Adonai's robe not only fills the temple, but is literally filling the temple. It's an active participle that has the idea of it has no end. It's just continuously uh, filling, just increasing. Um, the, go ahead. Um, it's interesting, Mark, to think that this is an image of the Holy Spirit, so you have the Trinity on display with Adonai and Yahweh, and the active filling of the temple being the Spirit. Is there any... Well, I, I don't know. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. Um, what do you think? Have you heard? I mean, have you heard any teaching on it? Yeah. Yeah, no, that's fine. Um, I don't, yeah, we're, we're Trinitarian. Sometimes we find any reason at all or excuse to try to find a third person in there somewhere. Um, no disparagement to your comment, but that might, this might be, it may not be. Um, The Adonai is Jesus. The the Lord is uh, capitals uh, Yahweh, and so and now we're going to have a thrice holy God. So you can make the argument certainly that the Trinity is represented here in the temple that Isaiah is seeing. I would not take issue with that. This robe is just increasingly filling the temple. And you're supposed to really be impacted by that. Just the glory and the holiness, the, the majesty of this being that Isaiah is seeing. Uh, and, uh, and is filling the temple. Uh, this is a word that could be translated palace. Um, there's an altar, which we, would be consistent with the temple. But... Um, some have argued, well, Isaiah is not a priest, so he wouldn't have had access into the actual temple. Uh, I don't know if that's pressing the point, but um, but it's still consistent with a palace, throne, king, robe, palace. It's where kings live. I'm good with that. So here, I think I think Isaiah's mourning over the loss of King Uzziah. 
And perhaps he goes into the palace, maybe just goes, or he's taken there in vision. He looks at the empty throne. He's mourning the loss of the king. And God takes him to the palace room of heaven. And he shows him, uh, don't be too worked up about this. The real throne is occupied. The real king is on the throne. He is ruling and reigning. He is the one who's sitting there and his reign has no end. And all that's in verse one, all right? So we come to verse two. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. Um, Seraphim. Literally, burning ones. They're hovering above him. And they each have six wings. Um, Sproul reminds us in his sermon that God creates creatures um, that are uniquely designed for the environment that they are to live in, right? So um, fish, gills, fins, scales, whatever, designed specifically to live in water. Birds, feathers, designed specifically for the air, to live in the environment of air. Uh, God uniquely equips the creatures that he creates to live uniquely in the, in the environment in which they are designed to function in. So here we have seraphim who are given six wings and specifically these six wings are necessary for them in order to function properly within the environment that God had created them to function in. So what do they do with these wings? Well, <clears throat> with two... They cover their face. Why cover their face? Why would these beings, right? These burning ones have to cover their face. Yeah, too holy to look upon. It's astonishing. There is, there is blazing holiness in the presence of God. And they are constantly beholding this blazing glory that even for these beings is too glorious for them to even look upon. Remember what happens when people come into contact with angels in the Bible, right? You have to imagine now you have seraphim in the presence of God who have to cover who have to cover their eyes. Uh, Sproul reminds us of the story of when Moses went up to the mountain and he received the law, right? He goes up into the cloud, he receives the law, he's there for several days. The people wondered what happened to Moses. And uh, Moses had seen some great things in his life, right? Burning bush, sea divided, the miracles that uh, God brought upon uh, Egypt. Moses had seen some tremendous things. But... um, But ultimately, when he goes up to the mountain, it's the, it's the grudita of all requests, right? Now the big one. Here's, here's Moses' big request. I've seen all of this other stuff, and it's great, but here's what I really want to see, remember? I want to see you. 
I want to see you, God. And God's like, oh, Moses. <laughs> so here's what I'll do. I'll, I'll take you and I'll put you in this cleft of the rock and, and uh, I'll, I'll pass by and I'll just give you a glimpse. In the Hebrew, the idea is the hindquarters, the back parts. I'll just give you a glimpse. Just a glimpse of, of my glory in the hind parts as I pass by. Glimpse, boom. And then you remember what happened. Moses comes down off the mountain, comes into the presence of the people, and what do they say? Hide your... There was blazing glory in Moses' face so much that the people couldn't even abide looking. And so this is a reflection of the glory of God just in the face of a man that was so brilliant that the people could not stand it. Cover your, cover your face. And so here you have these seraphim, these burning ones, in the presence of God, covering their face. Got the burning ones also covering their feet. With two, they cover their feet. We're not really clear necessarily. Maybe it's a symbol of humility. Sproul thinks that there's an idea of covering um, covering our humanity, covering humanity somehow. What do you say about that, Josh? Do you remember? Like covering the feet would be equivalent to covering, feet are normally associated with humanity. Creatureliness. Creatureliness. There it was, creatureliness. Does this have anything to do with holiness? Like when Moses is, you know, walking on the ground around the burning bush, there's this holy ground idea that the holiness of God is so great. Yeah. Is there any connection there? Uh, with the feet on the holy ground? Yeah. That the, that the angels could not walk maybe without covering their feet in the presence of... That's interesting. I'll think about that. I'm not sure. That might. The that might be... That I have too is, it's not your position, right, that this is literal, that these are literally six wings. Yeah. Because when we talked um, in Ezekiel last week about how in visions, angels are depicted in a way that they're not when they're literally being seen by people or they're taking the appearance of the one, but in visions... These things are meant to be symbolic. Okay. Say that's true of as well? Yeah, I'm not sure. I, I, I would take this uh, probably just from my standpoint more literally, I think, than that, that these are actual beings with actually six wings that are doing actual things that Isaiah is seeing in vision, uh, symbolically. Maybe I don't know that I would push back too hard on that. But um, but but I think I think we're looking at something that is more literal than that, but I could probably be persuaded. What's that? I, I think if it's, it, it's creaturely, then it might have been the more Roman Catholic view with like a nature-grace distinction where you've got something fundamentally uh, about the creature that can't be in the presence of God. Um, running back into a theology of Adam and Eve created not good. Okay. Um, so, uh, okay. Yeah, I, I don't know that I. I don't know that I would have a lot of objection there. Um, 
I think uh, I think Sproul's position is it's a it's a symbol of humility. The covering of the feet that Isaiah is seeing is a symbol of humility or covering creatureliness. Uh, but I'm willing to go down these other roads as well and examine that. Um, but right. So how do we understand that kind of stuff? Understand the big point, right? You have you have um, sinless, holy angels in the presence of God who Isaiah sees covering their face, covering their feet. They're in the midst of God's blazing holiness. Isaiah sees this. I wonder how Isaiah was feeling. It's possible, it's possible that this godly prophet was feeling a little out of place. And with two they flew. And he called out, and one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And this, the idea is this is what they're singing without ceasing. Just continually, kadosh, kadosh, kadosh. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Don't you love to sing that hymn? It's one of my favorites. They say it three times. You understand in Hebrew, if you wanted to emphasize something, it was by repetition. And so to, to, to really emphasize the reality of God's holiness, there was this, um, there was this emphasis that was, play, that was uh, the emphasis was seen through repetition. And so here you have a good picture of that. But notice it's not holy, holy is the Lord God, uh, but holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. Not enough to say God is holy or that he is holy, holy. His holiness taken to a third degree in order to convey the superlativeness of his Holiness and no doubt attached to the Trinitarian concept of God as well. It provides insight for us into the triunity of God here, uh, which takes us back to Jesse's point maybe earlier, uh, the Holy Spirit being present here as well. Oh, three times? Uh, like this? Yeah, my, yes, I, I think so. Because truly, truly is only twice. Yeah. Or verily, verily. Verily, verily. But this is, like, yeah, that's good. I think Sproul points that out when he preaches that this is the only word that is tripled. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's probably, I just stopped the sermon on the way here. So he probably touched that just as I pushed off. Because that's where I was. That's where I actually stopped listening, was when he was identifying... Yeah. And you know, Miss Blyman, Miss Blyman, with the repeated words. Oh, yeah, that's good. You do her pretty well. Uh, how repeated are they? This is huge. Yeah, this is huge. In the entire Bible, that yeah. this would be the only word repeated three times. Yeah. In the entire Bible. Yeah. Points out how significant that is. Yeah, I think that does show the, the superlativeness of God's uh, holiness, right? When Jesus made emphasis, as Barbie just reminded us, it was, uh, Amen, Amen. 
Um, normally after the preaching or after somebody says something that you like, you would say, Amen. Amen. Um, Jesus didn't wait until he was done teaching before he attached the amen to it. He just put it right at the beginning. Amen, amen, I say to you, or truly, truly, or old King James, verily, verily. So that, so you do see um, that when everything Jesus said would have been incredibly, amazingly important. But when he said something that he really didn't want the knucklehead disciples to miss, he attached this repetition to it, verily, verily. So these, these angels are awestruck uh, with the holiness of God and Isaiah seeing this. By the way, here's, I, I think that it's appropriate for us just to be challenged in this area. Uh, when you think about aspects of God's holiness, uh, the first thought you should have is transcendence. Um, God is transcendent. That is, he is separated. He is holy other, right? Uh, he is not like you and me. In, in, a, lot of, in a lot of our evangelifish thinking um, and teaching, we bring God down and we make him entirely too much like us. Um, and that is, uh, that is horrible. You need to avoid that at all costs. Um, there are certain things that he has uh, passed on to us that make us uh, somewhat like him in terms of attributes, right? Uh, they're called communicable attributes. There are the incommunicable attributes and communicable Uh, incommunicable that's what separates God from us transcendently just beyond us Um, omniscience omnipotence omnipresent these are not communicable attributes those are incommunicable but we do have the ability to love or to reason or to have relationship uh, or to live in covenant or family or community And in those aspects, those are communicable. God has given us that, and we can share, um, we can share with Him in those particular attributes. Uh, But again, I I think one of the biggest blights on modern evangelicalism today is uh, we have become far too familiar with the Holy One of Israel. If God is holy other than us, then even that which we know about him through his written word, through written revelation, uh, can only be sort of scratching the tip of the iceberg of what really would be his full essence that I think we would do well to believe is going to take an eternity for us to exhaust the essence of God. The second aspect of holiness, there's a separateness from sin. This is, uh, this is God. There, there would be a, God is transcendent and God is separate from sin and evil. 
Uh, Habakkuk tells us that God's eyes are too pure to look upon evil. John 1.5, God is light. In him there is no darkness. God is kadosh, kadosh, kadosh. He is, he is other than us, separated from us and from any sin or impurity. Um, and so, in fact, the Bible says we will not come to the light because we love the darkness. We are, we are lovers of darkness. In, dark, in God there is no darkness at all. And Isaiah tells us the whole earth is full of his glory. Glory of God, perfection of his attributes. When the angels say that the whole earth is full of his glory, uh, they're saying something like the whole earth will reflect his attributes. His whole, the whole earth will reflect in some way his character. Hopefully you might think of uh, Romans chapter 1. Verse 20, for the invisible attributes, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that he has made so that they are without excuse. There's a sense in which, in which God's glory is reflected through his creation. But there's also a sense in which God himself is not satisfied with the extent of that glory. Uh, you might think of Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Is that true today? The earth filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea? I don't think we're there. I don't think we're there yet. I think, I think those who say we're there have an overrealized eschatology. It's happening through the advancement of the gospel, through the preaching of the gospel, as the kingdom of God advances and grows and increases and penetrates our world. But the full realization of the glory of God filling the earth as the waters cover the sea is not going to be realized until the eternal state. But it will be realized in a new heaven, new earth reality. What, what, I think, uh, what I think the point is here is that God is committed to display his glory. God is committed to the, to the display of his glory. So this is what the angels are singing. And there's very definite results from this. In verse 4, notice. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. God's holiness is so awesome that when the angels begin to praise God for his holiness, the majesty of his holiness, Isaiah sees this as moving inanimate objects. In the Psalms, we see that even the mountains in the presence of God's holiness melt like wax, right? This is the language that's attached to what the holiness of God does um, to inanimate, unmovable objects. They move. Habakkuk 3, you see over and over how inanimate objects in creation tremble at the presence of Almighty God. 
And so the angels are singing, holy, holy, holy. And the very place where Isaiah is standing begins to shake. And then the smoke fills the temple palace and the smoke and the fire in scripture, of course, is a, is a, a sign, a symbol of the terror of Yahweh um, because it is the confrontation of his holiness with man's sin. And, um, and that you remember, that's what happens at Sinai as well. Again, when Israel goes to the mountain, what happens when Israel is at the mountain? Their earthquake got an earthquake and you have fire and you have smoke and you have a bunch of scary stuff happening so much so that the people are terrified. They want Moses to talk to them, not God directly. We're scared of God. Um, do you agree with me when I, when I say that in our day we have forgotten how holy God is? This is not something that we are comfortable with. Um, when we think about God in our evangelical culture, what word comes to our mind? What word do we like? Love. love right? God is love. God is love. Holiness is not, it's not the word that shows up in our vocabulary, in our thinking, the way that it should um, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 4. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Preach that, pastor. Let's talk about that. We have treated our God as one who is far too close to us, too familiar. We, we do not ascribe to him the holiness that we ought, either in our actions or in our attitudes. You love the little baby noises. That's fantastic, isn't it? What time is it? You want to go for a few more minutes? All right, let's go for just a few more minutes. Verse 5, this is the Holy One confronting the sinner. Here we go. Then I said, woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Um. Remember in verse 4 that smoke and fire was a visible proclamation, really, of uh, the holy confronting the unholy. The place is filled with smoke. And Isaiah says, and what do you think most modern, again, most, I'll pick on most modern evangelicals, would say right at this juncture, at verse 5, after what they are dealing with in verse 4, um, it, it might be more consistent with the, way, with the way that evangelicals think to assume that Isaiah might say something like, what a joy for me. What a joy for me to be in the presence of God. 
It's really good. And I must be so special to God that he has allowed me and invited me into such a glorious relationship with him. That might be the way I think we would, we evangelicals, would think at this point. You understand, this is a staggering reality. Isaiah would have been the most godly man in all of Israel. He is the most godly man that would have been invited into this throne room. God takes him in there. He is a godly man. And when confronted with the Holy One of Israel, all he can do is say, woe is me. That's it. That's all I got. Oi. <laughs> Oi. Um, woe. Oi vey. Um, the idea, though, of course, is it's a, it's a Yiddish derivative from the Hebrew oive. And, um, and when you pronounce this, it's kind of like, this is it. You know, I'm done. I'm smoked. It's an oracle of doom. It's an oracle of judgment. And it's amazing, Isaiah pronounces a woe oracle upon himself. I am in utter despair. I I am ruined. I am destroyed. I'm undone. I'm unraveled. I'm ruined. This righteous prophet of God. And the only thing that can come out of his mouth is a word of self-condemnation. And why? Well, because he's in the presence of the thrice holy God. And he recognizes, I'm a man of unclean lips. So you have in the midst of this uh, angelic chorus of the holy, holy, holy pronouncement. In the midst of that, Isaiah could not sing. His lips that should be praising cannot praise because they are polluted. The lips are polluted. And so the angels worship with pure lips. Isaiah cannot. He has a dirty life, a dirty heart. He has dirty lips. Remember what Jesus said about what goes into a man? What goes into a man does not defile the man, but what comes out of the man that defiles him from within out of our hearts come evil thoughts murders adulteries fornications Um, we live we have unclean lips and we live amongst a people of unclean lips go to the break room just listen Go to the ballpark. Go, go play some basketball at a pickup game on a, in a park anywhere in the valley. Just And listen. It's astonishing. We hear the blasphemy of God's name everywhere. Unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And so the emphasis upon the King, and of course that would be the case because... The contrast is that Uzziah is dead. The human king is dead. But now I see the true king. 
angels covering their eyes, protect themselves, blazing glory of God. Isaiah doesn't have wings that he can cover himself with to protect him. So he sees the king and he concludes, no covering, I'm ruined. I'm ruined. And I think that's the response when the unholy come into contact with the holy. Um, you remember what um, story about Simon Peter fishing, right? They're out all night. They catch nothing. They're on their way in. See Jesus on the shore. How'd the fishing go? Not that great. Didn't catch anything. Go back out, throw the net on the other side. You know the story. Peter must have thought that's ridiculous. You know how many times we've thrown that net on the other side of the boat all night long and not, not and nothing? And now you want us to go out and you want to leave the fishing up to us. We're the professional fishermen. You're the rabbi. You're the teacher. Uh, stay in your lane. They don't say that. They just go out, throw the net over. And, um, you know, and every fish in the lake jumps in the net. And, and they can't even haul it up. And... Um, we might expect Peter being a Jewish fisherman would think that he's got a wonderful business partner now. We're going to uh, open up uh, Peter's fishing industry and we're going to make a lot of money, Lord, you and I. Uh, but all he does is when uh, Peter saw what he saw, uh, what does he do? He, felt, he falls down at Jesus' feet and he says, go away from me, Lord. For I am a sinful man. So here Peter recognizes in the presence of the Holy Son of God, he was undone. This is Peter's version of woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. And this is what happens when the holy comes into contact with the unholy. This is Isaiah's experience in Isaiah uh, chapter 6. So let me, uh, let me close by giving you some... What time is it? Um, Let me, uh, let me close with a, a couple of exhortations. All right? Number one, in order to know ourselves, we, we, need, we need to know the God of Isaiah chapter 6. Right? The problem is, because we don't know who God is, we don't know who we are. And, um, and so the proud and the self-righteous, they've never come into contact with the God of Isaiah chapter 6. If you are a proud person, we talked about that Sunday. We're going to talk about it some more this coming Sunday. Those who are proud, those who are self-sufficient, those who regard themselves as self-righteous, these people have never come into contact with the God of Isaiah chapter 6. Those who think that they're good enough, right? You've got to imagine this, right? This is, this, is, this is the contact point we have with unbelievers. When we talk to unbelievers about the gospel, we might ask them the common question, if you die tonight, where would you spend eternity? And 99 out of 100 would say, well, I'm going to go to heaven, going to be, going to be in heaven. Uh, well, how, how, why do you think that? And their response, 99 out of 100, I'm a good person. I'm, I'm basically a good person. Those who think that way have no concept at all about the God of Isaiah chapter 6. 
no concept. They don't know this God. They have, uh, they have a God of their own making. And so uh, they have a God that's um, interested in uh, our self-image. He's interested in us loving ourselves, um, having a positive self-esteem. And so uh, contrary to all the psychological advice you have ever paid for and got ripped off on, it's okay to, um, it's okay in view of the holiness of God to feel guilty about your sin. Guilt is a good thing to feel. If you don't have guilt, woe is me, if you don't have guilt, you're really not standing before the God of Isaiah chapter 6. You're standing before a God of your own imagination. You've created a God for yourself. A sense of guilt and condemnation, I would argue, is a very good and healthy thing in the presence of a holy God. That guilt and sense of condemnation is actually a very great thing because it's that that is the impetus, right? It's that that accelerates us and moves us and empowers us and motivates us to run to the cross. We must be in Christ. God must deal with us as he would deal with his son. Um, and so we must, be found, we must be found in Christ, ultimately. The minds of Christians, secondly, just by way of application, the minds of Christians have to be filled with concepts of the greatness of God. This is really uh, essential for us. Um, and let me, uh, let me give you some suggestions on this. You like to read? If you, you need to be readers, by the way. You got to read. You got to be people who love to read because there are resources and materials that are available that really just absolutely crucial and helpful for us in moving us down this road. Ocu- having our minds occupied with the reality of God's greatness. Read Stephen Sharnock's book, The Existence and Attributes of God. Astonishing. Very helpful. He, he unfolds the attributes of God in a way that is just thrilling to the soul. Um, I, I want to ask for a raise of hands, but I won't. Um, I want to, I mean, you've read J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God, right? Just, I got Abe reading it right now, and Abe just is blowing it up. He cannot believe that there's been a book written like this. This is, this is a must-read for every Christian, J.I. Packer, Knowing God. This is one you should read over and over again. This book will fill your soul with the greatness and the majesty of God. A.W. Tozer's book, The Knowledge of the Holy. Easy read, small book, tremendous. Man did not have a high school education. Never graduated from high school writing a book on the knowledge of the holy, and it is absolutely astonishing. A.W. Pink's Sovereignty of God. A.W. Pink's The Attributes of God. Essential, incredible books, precious few books that exalt the greatness of God like these I've just mentioned. 
You need to read. Okay, I think that's... Any other any thoughts or questions? I mean, we could go on. I wanted to talk about verses 6 and 7 because here's the Holy One forgiving a sinner, right? So let's read this together, and, 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 but we won't focus too much here. Uh, then one of the seraphim flew with, with, to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. So here's Isaiah, no ability at all to cleanse himself. Stands there, absolutely undone, in complete, total, spiritual poverty, without any power or ability at all, and God sends, uh, God sends a mediator. He sends a type of Christ who comes... And with a burning, the burning one taking the coal and touching Isaiah's mouth. Burning coal on the mouth. What a picture. What a symbol. The Old Testament, there was the altar of incense located in the holy place, just outside the Holy of Holies. Leviticus 6, 8 through 13, talks about that brazen altar with the fire going on in it all the time, and the sacrifices are brought, placed on the altar. Fire is never allowed to go out. That's the picture. The coal is taken and put on Isaiah's lips, which then becomes a sign of cleansing. And you don't see this as imagery? No, it is imagery. Okay. Yeah, I'm with you on that. This isn't Christ. Yeah. No, it's imagery. I mean, what a picture. No, right. Yeah. It's 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 a sign of cleansing and forgiveness and atonement and all of that. Yeah, go ahead, Jess. So uh, we're Oh yeah. Right? I mean, the holiness of God brings us into an knowledge of sin, confession, uh, cleansing, and then uh, the grace of uh, communion and the commission to, you know, at the end of it, he chooses Isaiah go and do something out yeah. of the world. Right? And yeah. so one of the one of the pushbacks I got on this as well, you know, they're they're formed out this pretty, you know, maybe a greater distinction between the covenants. And this is the other thing. <laughs> right. right. And of course, there's lots of ways to answer that. But something that just struck me as you were talking, I wonder if I get your opinion. So, Isaiah sees Adonai um, on the throne. And I wonder if this isn't like Isaiah having a vision in Isaiah's time, but Isaiah transported into the future when the risen, ascended Lord Jesus Christ, Adonai, is on the throne. Yeah. I mean, if you're kind of like at the annual seven. Yeah, no, vision, right. Right? Right. Which really would, in answer to my Reformed Baptist friends, 
make this extremely eminent as to how we worship today. Yeah. Because Christ is on the throne today. Yeah. So. Yeah, no, I think that's I think that's right. I think all of that is uh, is is really good and helpful. Um, the songs we sing in worship, they must reflect the greatness of God is displayed to us in the Word of God and through Isaiah chapter six. They just have. There's no place for the frivolous, for the frivolous uh, superficial ditties, right? And there's far too, there's far too much of that. These trivial songs they don't exalt God. Uh, may every version of "Do Lord" perish forever, right? Uh, they're just silly songs that we sing, and so our corporate worship really should be governed very much by the greatness of God as He's manifest to us in Isaiah. By the way, uh, Nabad and Abihu, right, serve as excellent reminders when they decide to do their own thing in worship. Remember how it goes for them? Yeah. Uh, they offer, they bring up strange fire, and uh, you can read this in Leviticus chapter ten. We're curious to find out what will happen uh, if we just go outside of what God has prescribed and we'll do it our way. And uh, fire comes out of the tabernacle and consumes both of these sons of Aaron. Yeah, yeah, right. And remember what Moses said to Aaron, right? Don't you remember that God said that whoever comes before me must treat me as holy? And so we come into the worship of God on the Lord's Day. And through the preaching of the word and through the songs that we sing, all everything we should do should exalt the holiness of God. Um, April, you've been very patient. Thank you. Uh, Both of those lords are referring to Jesus. I don't think so. Um, I would think that it would, uh, if that was the case, both Adonai's would be you. I think that there's a distinction here between, uh, well, because two words are used, right? One is Yahweh and the other one is Adonai. And, those, and consistently through scripture. Both of those be said of Christ. Yahweh is referred to as, I mean, Jesus is referred to as Yahweh. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The, all right, I mean, yeah, we one God, three persons, but when... Yes, of course, but yeah. every time I've heard it preached, both of those words in this passage are said to refer to Jesus in every other sermon I've heard on this. So okay. I guess I'm wondering like, why why you think there's a distinction being made when Isaiah is seeing Adonai on the throne, and yet then the seraphim would be referring to someone else who's not on the throne. Do you see what I'm saying? Or in context. What's that? It's the same distinction in Psalm 110. There's the distinction, right, in Psalm 110. Right. Twice referred to two different things. Two different. There's Yahweh and Adam. But in that context, it's clear that it's one person talking to another person. I think in the context of Isaiah 6, 
you have the seraphim referring to Yahweh, and the immediate reference would be, okay, they're celebrating the one who is on the throne, who is Adonai. Right? Why is there a separation? I think God said it's important because, so if, if, if we look at this as being a, a Isaiah transported into the future when the Ancient of Days is sitting on the throne, remember what God said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Right? So it is the throne at the right hand of Yahweh. So both God the Father and God the Son uh, in human flesh are now on, on the throne. We're focused on the throne on the right, the right hand of Yahweh. And so the seraphim are there in, in the holy temple still singing praises to Yahweh um, while Adonai is on the throne at the right hand of God the Father as the agent of his power to yeah. say his yes and. Yeah. Well, um, when you start your statements by saying, I don't want to harp on this, and then you harp on it, we got you. We, we're, we're, we, we recognize that, but that's okay. I have, I have no problem with that. I don't really know. Yeah, I'm good with saying I'm not really sure. The only thing I, I do, I am, I am moved by the reality that it is Adonai and Yahweh as distinct in consistence with Psalm 110, and how the Godhead is named, um, the Father speaking to the Son, the distinction. Um, I think the distinction is there, but, but they're also united, right? There's a, there's, a, there's a distinction between them, but they're one together there as well. So I think that the, I don't, I'm not sure. I'm not sure other than that um, exactly what's going on there, but... Uh, but I but I tend to think that there's a distinction between the Son and the Father, and yet they're there in unity, and Isaiah is seeing them. And if Jesse's right, and the glory is also uh, attached to the Holy Spirit, you, you may have some vision of the Trinity there. It does speak to the triunity, right? And then particularly with the threefold kadosh, 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 um, you're making a distinction. I, I do think that the Trinity is here um, in some way. Yeah. Doesn't answer all the questions. It's certainly interesting, though, isn't it? So this, this uh, coal touches the lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. And we all ought to say, Amen, Amen. <laughs> Wonderful. What a, what a, what a beautiful thing. Your iniquity is expiated. Your iniquity is removed. Your sin is atoned for, propitiated. And I would say there, this whole thing, what a glorious picture of the gospel. That's exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ does for us. He goes to Golgotha. He takes our sin upon himself. Every sin that we have ever committed, placed on him. He is our sin bearer. And... Um, and uh, you also have the scapegoat imagery here as well, where um, this, 
where the, where the uh, sacrifice is made outside the camp and our sins are taken away, expiated, as the, uh, as the scapegoat would also be sent away and expiated on the Day of Atonement. So the wrath of God targeted toward us is now turned away and it falls on Jesus Christ in our place on Calvary. Uh, oh, our sin, oh, the bliss of the glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. And so this is the only remedy. This is the only remedy for unclean lips. This is the only remedy for an unclean heart. It's the only remedy for sinful men. We come into contact with the Holy One. Uh, we must have forgiveness. We must have our sins atoned for. We must have them expiated and propitiated for. And, uh, and only after that sin is removed is Isaiah ready to serve. Which comes in verses 8 through 13. You can read. Uh, well, I'll read it and then we're done. And then I heard a voice, the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Us, that's interesting, isn't it? Um, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. He said, Go and tell this people, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. And then I said, um, Lord, how long? Because it doesn't sound like he's going to have a hugely successful ministry. It's going to be terrible. People not going to believe. Hard hearts. Nobody's going to respond. You might ask that same question, Lord, how long? How long do I have to do this? And he answered, till cities are devastated without inhabitant. Houses are without people, and the land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men from far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Yet there will be a tenth portion in it, right? Always a remnant. And it will again be subject to burning like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains. When it is felled, the holy seed is the stump. So here's God's sovereign call on Isaiah in verse 8 and following. So God, God has forgiven him, and now he's prepared uh, to go. Do you notice how anxious, right? Isn't this great? I mean, this really does preach well, doesn't it? Who will go for us? And Isaiah, immediately, here I am, send me. Eagerness, passion, desire. I'm not sure he'd be quite so eager if this was at the end of the job description, right? But at the beginning of it, he's very eager. Who will go for us? And Isaiah signs up immediately, very, very anxious. Um, and uh, he says, here I am, send me. Well, hopefully that's the mentality of every one of us as believers who have been bought and uh, forgiven, we are commissioned by God to go. And hopefully we have hearts that are as anxious as Isaiah's, as willing, as obedient. Just a question, because um, 
It seems like it, right? Does that help? Does that help a, li- a little bit with your question concerning the tri- the nature of the Trinity? Seems to be apparent here, right? Well, I mean, the nature of the Trinity is in throughout Scripture, obviously. So yeah. I'm not denying that, that that's a part. Of that. Yeah, nobody's going to accuse you, April, of being a Jesus only <laughs> kind of person where you're going to you're going <laughs> to. Right. And, I, and, and yet, I, I do think that there's a glimpse for us here in this vision of the Godhead. Uh, of, I'm nitpicking. No, that's all right. Yeah. It was just curiosity. Yeah. Um, look, the Lord Jesus uses this text of himself in John 12. We saw that. And the Holy Spirit uses this of himself in Acts 28 as well. Send me, send me. Here I am. Behold me. Here I am. Those who are reconciled to God through Jesus Christ should have hearts that are filled with the desire to go, to serve, to preach, be involved, to love people, advance his cause, his kingdom, his gospel. And I guess that's it for us tonight. All right. Any other thoughts or questions? Good. Thanks for coming. Isaiah 6. Wow. Really a high watermark in terms of God's revelation. Father, thank you tonight for this great chapter. Really, there's um, many mysteries that are still unresolved, but so much clarity here with this vision that Isaiah has, what it teaches us about who you are, what it teaches us about who we are, what it teaches us about our need for your grace and mercy, for the forgiveness of sin, how thankful we are for a Savior who came to take away our sins, to provide for us a sacrifice, to provide for us the forgiveness that we desperately need and be brought into right relationship with you. Father, may our hearts be filled with that same desire that Isaiah had as you call people to come follow you and to call us to go into all the world, to be used by you in in ministry and serving and teaching and loving and discipleship and building into each other's lives. Father, we pray that there would be an eagerness, um, a willingness, a a genuine heart that desires that. And forgive us, Lord, where we fall short of that. And uh, give us boldness. Lord, give us boldness that we would go and tell this people, even if they do not listen, even if their hearts are hardened, even if the result is rejection, unbelief, hatred toward us, that there would still be an obedience on our part to go and to announce and to preach and to tell this people the truth of the gospel. Father, we love you tonight. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.